Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. We're talking to Congressman Justin Amash about how to break down all of these political silos that cynical politicians are using to divide America, to tear it apart. We're also going to talk about, wait for it, Hayekian libertarianism. You do not want to miss this. I know, I know a lot about your congressional career, but... It's like Howard Stern, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, and this is sort of the, the got you <laughs> question that starts this. But but tell people who you are first so we know who we're talking to. Well, I'm, I'm Justin Amash. Uh, hopefully some people know that. Um, but I'm a libertarian Republican. Uh, I represent the Grand Rapids, Michigan area. We go down to Battle Creek, Michigan. Um, and I've been in Congress for eight years now, so this is my fifth term in Congress. And, you know, I'm uh, a big believer in individual liberty, and I would describe my philosophy as Hayekian libertarian. And we're going to dig into that because because yeah. I think most people, un except for myself, are saying, I don't even know what that is, but we'll <laughs> dig into that. But so I'm 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 checking out your Twitter feed, which is where mm -hmm. anybody that wants to know more about what Justin Amash is thinking, you you pretty much live this 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 radically transparent life where you explain what you're thinking and why you're voting and and responding to people, and and I was I was struck by this this response you did. I think it's a couple of months ago. This was the first day of the the swearing in of the 116th Congress, uh, Congresswoman Omar from Minnesota, mm -hmm. she, you remember this text. The 116th Congress has so much to be proud of, and there's all these green check marks. First Somali American plus refugee, first Muslim women, uh, first indigenous women, first Palestinian American, uh, youngest, uh, and she's talking about AOC at 28 years old, record 100 plus women, and it goes on and on and on about all these things that the new Democratic House had accomplished, and you responded with sort of a fact check, say, wait a minute, um, she's not the first Palestinian-American. I was. Yeah. Well, you know, even I'm not the first Palestinian-American, so I just wanted to make sure uh, she knew that I exist. Yeah. But, um, you know, you've got John Sununa, who is in Congress as well, um, and, you know, he's got some Palestinian background as well. So, um I think it's easy to assume that because someone comes in and they wear it all on their sleeves and they're, you know, um, telling everyone every second that they're from a particular background that they must be the only one. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I have a slightly different take on the whole thing and, um, you know, I just, just reminding people that, uh, it's easy to dismiss those of us who are proud of our backgrounds, but, um, we're not going around, um, you know, parading it everywhere. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, what what that, her tweet said to me is exactly where I wanted to take this conversation because it, it seems like when the, the, the new left, um, I'm not sure what to call it, the identity left, mm -hmm. um, and they've, they've created all these silos, and there's, there's of course, um, some silos are more virtuous than other silos, but it's silos based on ethnicity, and religion and skin color 
and sexual preference. And, and there's, there's now dozens, maybe there's hundreds of silos that, that the modern left has created. But it, it doesn't feel like it's um, bringing people together. I feel, like, I, I feel like they're redividing us based on all of these things. And, and what's, what was interesting about your response is I suspect most people don't know that your, that your dad was Palestinian. Um, yeah, and because, a refugee. Yeah, and yeah. a refugee, because that's, that's, not, that's not your identity. Your identity is an American. That's right. Yeah, and you know, I'm proud of my background. Um, I really um, was shaped very much by my background and by my dad's experience. In fact, I would say that one of the reasons I'm a libertarian is largely due to my dad's experience um, of being a refugee and coming to the United States. And my mom is also an immigrant from Syria. Um, and and that really shaped who I am and, um, and is probably the reason I love America so much and am so proud to be an American and um, am so inspired by the system we have here, our Constitution, our um, our Declaration of Independence, uh, the ideals that it represents. I, I think it was largely shaped by my background. Um, but my parents, and um, especially my dad growing up, really emphasized um, we are Americans and we're proud to be here and we are so thankful to this country for giving us this opportunity, um, the opportunity for my brothers uh, and, and I to be born here in the United States, um, it's just, uh, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Could, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your parents' journey? Your dad was, w- w- what was he running from? Well, Because uh, refugee yeah. implies that he, that he had to get out, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, there was a war going on there. Yeah. Um, this was 1948, and um, he was in the middle of a conflict, and uh, there was a conflict between um, uh, you know, uh, many Jews coming in and um, many Muslims and Christians, which were the um, smallest population there. Um, of at least of those three groups, were largely, um, you know, bystanders. So uh, they were affected by the conflict, but nobody really, you know, wanted them around. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there they were uh, living there, and they basically weren't sure whether this was a safe place to be. Um, they uh, fled their homes out of fear. Um, you know, I, I remember my dad telling me that they were, um, you know, removed from their homes at gunpoint and told, Hey, you know, uh, you shouldn't be here. This is not safe for any of you. That's a fairly clear (laughs) signal. Yeah. You, you, um, you know, you Christians, you don't want to suffer the fate of other people. So it's time to get out of here. Yeah. And, and they fled. Yeah. And, uh, um, correct my history, but a, a church in Grand Rapids sponsored your dad or both your parents? Well, it wasn't, a, it was in, uh, close to Grand Rapids. It was a church in Muskegon. Okay. And, uh, it was a minister and his wife sponsored, uh, my dad's family. Okay. And, um, uh, it was called Church of the Brethren and they, and the, the, uh, family was called the Wagner, the fact, the Wagner family. And uh, my dad still stays in touch with them. And, um, 
you know, they they were looking to sponsor a Christian family to come to the United States. They wanted to sponsor um, someone from the Middle East and and uh, from from Palestine. And, you know, my dad's father was not an educated man uh, and, um, you know, not an certainly not an expert in a lot of things. But he knew one thing, which is if he can get to the United States with his family, that was the best thing for them. And, um, that was the most important decision, uh, for our family. You know, the fact that, um, he made that decision as, as little as he may have known about like, (laughs) you know, um, about the world and, and, um, he knew if I go to the United States with my family, they'll have an opportunity. Yeah. And and I'm uh, experiencing the blessings of that now. Yeah, the the American dream. <laughs> That's right. And 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 your your dad met your mom here. Uh, well, my dad met my uh, my great aunt, um, Linda, and met her in Michigan, and um, she had a family still in the Middle East. My mom. And, um, you know, my great aunt's sisters, my grandma, obviously. And um, so my mom's family was still in Syria. And uh, my dad was told, hey, if you're over there, my, you know, my great aunt said, my family lives over there. So they connected that way. He was he was going back to the Middle East um, on a trip and he uh, happened to have the opportunity to stop by and and visit with my grandma and her family, and that's where he met my mom. Yeah, the but your your story as as an American, um, your your dad was always you know particularly proud to be here. Yes, and proud to have made that choice, and 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 I suspect. I mean, we'll we'll get into this, but um, maybe that's really where your libertarianism came from. Yes, I mean, my dad was so happy to be here um growing up that's the thing i remember most is my dad telling me all the time and my brothers um that we are so blessed to be in the united states we're blessed to be in a place where it doesn't matter what your last name is it doesn't matter what your religious background is or your ethnic background and you know we happen to be christian so it's actually much easier to come here than than many other people um, but nonetheless, he, he emphasized how, how important it was that we were in a place where your background didn't matter. Um, in so many countries, you make it or don't make it based on whether you are connected to the government or you're connected to the ruling class or you're from the right ethnic group. Um, and uh, you just look at the Middle East, where yeah. my parents came from. There's so much corruption so much of it is just based on who do you know? And in the United States, he told us, you can come here or you can be born here and you can make it regardless of your background. And this doesn't mean you're going to be, you know, um, amazingly wealthy or anything like that. It just means that you can provide for your family and be comfortable um, on your own. You don't have to have the government assisting you this way or that way or, or um, you know, cutting you a special favor because you're connected to them. Here in the United States, you can make it. In other countries, you can't make it because if you're not on the right side of the government or the right side of 
whichever ethnic groups in control in other countries, you're not going to make it. You're going to always be held back. They're going to force you down. Um, and here they can't stop you. So, um, you know, that really stuck with me, those stories he'd tell me. And that's why when, uh, when I come to this and when I talk about my background, it's always in terms of what a blessing it is to be here. Um, you know, I think that I do bring a lot with my cultural background. I can um, educate people about things that they might not be aware of around the world. And I have uh, uh, maybe a deeper appreciation of some of the um, customs and cultures around the world um, than many people who haven't experienced that. But, uh, you know, when I present it, when I talk about it, I like to emphasize how, how important it is that we were given this opportunity and how much of a blessing that is. They're, you know, uh, trying to figure out today, particularly in the context of, of the identity politics on the left and the right, What's what's the balance between, you know, who your parents were, your who your grandparents were, versus who we are, and what our common bounds are as Americans? And I, I feel like we may be losing track of of the difference between those things and how they fit together. Well, I think we're supposed to be a country that um, follows the rule of law that has a system that applies equally to everyone. And then, of course, you bring your different cultures, your different backgrounds to it, um, and people live together peacefully in this country, regardless of their backgrounds. Uh, I think uh, you do see more and more people trying to emphasize the differences and suggesting that um, we're, we're not alike, um, when, in fact, I do think we share so much in common, even though we do come from different places. Um, you know, someone who has a, a background, um, you know, that where they were born here and their, their ancestry was here for generations and generations has a lot in common with someone who is, um, you know, a new immigrant like my, my dad. They, they love America for the same reasons. Um, they love America because, uh, you know, we have opportunity here and we have liberty here. And we can make choices for our own lives. And I think that it is um, dangerous to constantly be trying to divide us and to suggest that we're all different and uh, really we don't share that much in common. And actually, this is one of my objections with the um, partisan structure of government right now, where the, the two sides are so partisan and people have become so partisan. It's, it's an extension of this same issue where... Uh, people are trying to divide us and always make us into, um, you know, different things as though we're not all just people. Yeah, it feels <laughs> it feels uh, more heightened than ever, perhaps by social media. It, it feels like tribal warfare. Like, yeah. And, and most of the identity of each party is is more about what you're against. You, you're against those guys right. as opposed to this is what I'm for. And that that seems to be a shift from where we were even even back in the, the, the old Tea Party days. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's always been uh, partisanship. There's always been differences where pe that people emphasize. But uh, I think more and more you have a politics uh, where everyone is has to emphasize how much they don't like the other side. Yeah. And they have to own the other side. And I tweeted about this the other day, um, talking about how it seems like 
everyone has to conclude their um their tweet about their political perspective by taking a shot at the other side. Yeah. Like why yeah, can't I they just tweet. why can't they just say what they think and leave it there? Why does it always have to be um but Republicans blah 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 or but Democrats will never figure this out or why do why the extra shot? Like yeah. Just let it be. I understand why some people, why someone might do it sometimes, why, you know, you get frustrated and you might say something. And I think we've all done that from time to time where we, we say something out of frustration. But some people, many people nowadays do it out of habit on every single issue. And I think that's not good for our country. Yeah. So, so let's, get, let's get back to your story for a second, because I think, I think my hope is that, that maybe this thing you're calling Hayekian libertarian has a path mm -hmm. forward for everybody. But like you, you, you surely weren't reading Hayek in grade school, right? No, I, I wasn't. And in fact, I was, by the way, so, it's, a, it's a horrible <laughs> way. Imagine. It's a horrible way to meet, meet girls by quoting that stuff. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I kind of wish I'd read Hayek in grade school, but, um, it's, it's sometimes complicated stuff. So, you know, English wasn't his first language and, his sentences are sometimes long, but, um, you know, I was always anti-authoritarian. I didn't really think of myself as a libertarian as a kid because I didn't really know what it was. Um, you know, you, when you're growing up, you, you hear about it, but you thought that just meant like, you know, the air force should be privatized or something like you didn't, yeah. you, you didn't know what it, what does it mean to be a libertarian? Um, and, I, I came to um, understand my place in the sort of philosophical world as I got older. In, in fact, I studied economics, my degrees in economics, and I don't think we ever talked about Hayek, not once. I'm, I'm so not I, shocked at I went all. Through, yeah. I went through um, undergrad economics, got my degree, um, never, I don't think Hayek was ever discussed. I went to law school. I'm not sure Hayek was ever discussed. Um, and he's critical in both in both fields, right? Both in economics right. and law. Yeah, and never discussed. And I didn't really discover him until after I was done with law school. Um, you know, I, I was uh, trying to figure out where I fit in uh, because I, you know, I was I've always been nominally a Republican. You know, I I I grew up you know, supporting Republican candidates and um, generally liking what Republicans said. Uh, in practice, obviously, it, it, they didn't follow through on a lot of the things they talked about. But I at least uh, felt like uh, between the two major parties, this was the party that was uh, going in the better, better direction, um, more aligned with my perspective. But I always found some differences. And um, one day I decided, you know, I better figure out where I am in this philosophical world. I'm done with law school now. I'm an adult. I've got to sort of figure out where I now, stand. Weren't you sort of flirting with potentially running for something or is this even before I was, that? Uh, this was before I started thinking about running. I mean, since I was, um, you know, I've, I'd say even in high school and college, I thought about maybe running, but I never like it was never some concrete thing. I thought I would become a lawyer, basically, yeah. and maybe someday I would run for something. But um, you know, 
even before I got to the point where I was seriously considering running, um, I, You're I just remember trying to figure yeah, out, just the, trying to figure out where I'm, where I'm at. And, which box? Yeah. And yeah. I, I remember, um, going to like Google and going into the search bar and typing in, um, typing in what I believed, you know, it was a weird search, right? Right. Like who, who types this into a Google search, right. but I start to type in what I believe in the Google search and, uh, up pops Hayek's Wikipedia page. And, um, I found it astonishing on so many levels. Well, first of all, uh, Wikipedia was largely influenced by this idea of spontaneous order that Hayek. Yeah. Jimmy know, Wales says <laughs> it was, that he was sort of ripping off Hayek when he, when he sort of let this yeah. spontaneous emergence of knowledge thing happen. Right. So, I mean, yeah. Wikipedia in some sense is a Hayekian project. Right. Right. And, uh, and there I read the Hayek, um, page and I was like, yeah, this is, this is what I believe. This guy is saying what I think. Um, and so I was like, well, I better start reading some of his books. So I started, uh, reading the road to serfdom, which is, I think where everyone probably starts with Hayek. I'm not sure about you when you were in grade school, but, yeah. <laughs> but, um, I think most people, when they first pick up something from Hayek, they pick up the road to serfdom. And then from there, I went to some of his essays um, and just started basically devouring Hayek, you know, yeah. reading as much as I could. And I found this man uh, extremely insightful, fascinating. Um, he was putting into words things that I had thought but did not really know how to um, frame them effectively. And, uh, you know, I think that, uh, that, that changed my life in many ways. And you eventually, um, I know this just because, and I think it's still true, but the, certainly the first time I went into your congressional office, all of my intellectual heroes uh, greeted me when I stepped mm -hmm. in the front door. And I always joke that, that you, you have a picture of Carl Menger in, <laughs> yes, I, in your office. I'm and, pretty sure I'm the only person with Carl Menger on the wall. Yeah, well, certainly the only <laughs> member of Congress and, and perhaps um, a club of, of maybe a dozen people in the world that have a picture <laughs> of Carl Menger. The founder of the Austrian School of Economics, yeah. but but you you had Mises and Hayek and and Rothbard and Rand and you wouldn't uh, believe how often I talk about the subjective theory of value. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and and people are entranced by yeah. that. Yeah, I mean that. it's, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the the stuff I picked up um, just from you know starting to read, especially with Hayek, but I, I moved on and and read other works as well. Yeah. Um, it was just uh, invigorating in many ways. You know, it, it, it was the kind of stuff I was already thinking, but hadn't really um, been able to uh, to frame, as I said, uh, in a way that, you know, was concise. And, and I feel like um, I feel like it's it's so critical to the work I do. The, the reason I have these Austrian economists up on my wall is because they remind me of what I should be doing as a legislator uh, about um, the importance of liberty and of uh, not trying to control the entire system, that we have um, a world built upon spontaneous order. And too often legislators are trying to be like busybodies, um, trying to control everything and dictate outcomes. Uh, that's why, like, my staff know that 
the rule of law is probably the most important principle we follow. Like we always have to follow the constitution. Obviously I'm a, I'm, you know, working in the U S government, I have to follow the constitution. But if you talk about a principle that I must follow, um, you know, uh, in addition to following the constitution, it's the rule of law. And these, uh, individuals in the Austrian school really helped develop that idea of the rule of law and especially Hayek. Yeah. The, the, uh, knowledge and the the way that knowledge emerges from the process of free people working together is is sort of the basis by which I filter everything around <laughs> me, and it's a pretty it's a pretty reliable way to think about things. But for those uh, people uh, watching or listening to this, let's let's sort of walk them through a little bit of what Hayek argued. Um, you know, he was he was spending the first half of his career arguing with with actual socialists mm -hmm. and then John Maynard Keynes famously um, now captured in a famous rap video <laughs> where he's debating Keynes but his his what he, he was sort of banging his head against the wall because he was trying to explain to um, very um, technocratic economists mm -hmm. why they couldn't do what they wanted to do what what was the Hayekian insight well uh uh, the insight, from my perspective, is that um, or order emerges um, spontaneously, that it's through the interaction of thousands or millions or even billions of people on our planet that you get an order that is constructed. And, um, you know, he really thought of um, the law as something that emerges um, kind of like you know, people might talk about the common law. Uh, it's something that emerges and is discovered over long periods of time. And that... Just, just by people uh, By people trying interacting. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So like he, he often talks about how uh, people want to, um, especially in government, they want to sort of analyze things from afar and make, make decisions for people, make determinations about what people should do. But the government, it, it doesn't ever have the knowledge it needs to make these decisions because um, there's something that he calls uh, the, the knowledge of the uh, particular circumstances of time and place. Yeah. And this is the knowledge that each of us has as we walk around in life we have knowledge that is particular to us and our circumstances and other people don't have that knowledge and so you can't have the government making these determinations when it's missing a whole bunch of information um, and there are all sorts of laws that develop uh, that we don't think of as laws necessarily like um, when you go to a store and you stand in a line um, it's not because the state of Michigan told you to do so or because the federal government right, <laughs> instructed right. you to do so. You know that you stand in a line. That's, that's what happens. It's a sort of law that has developed. And if someone cuts in line, everyone's upset. Yeah. Right? Nobody's like, hey, that's, that's okay. People right. are upset about it. But there's no law about it um, from, the, from the government. The law developed spontaneously. And um, these kind of things are all around us every day. And I think we don't appreciate them enough. Um, and I, I think really that was his insight that uh, people have particular knowledge 
that is uh, localized, that is just for them, and they can utilize that knowledge. And it's actually our, the interactions of all these people that allow us to accomplish great things in the world. I think, it, uh, and, it, and he had a, you know, he had a suspicion of like this sort of constructivism. Yeah. This idea that you could use reason to, um, to, you know, determine things. Uh, he actually, he actually viewed people as, you know, um, he was a little bit cynical about how much people actually knew in terms of um, scientific knowledge and all that, and and thought, well, the the reason we do great things is actually because. Um, you know, a lot of us individually, we might not know that much, but interacting, we learn a lot. Yeah. Well, he would eventually call those, the you know, I call them scientistic types. Yeah. And, you know, economics was, was, a, was one of the primary areas where, you know, they had reduced all of human action into a number and a set of equations and ascribing all sorts of assumptions about your, about your preferences and and your abilities and all that stuff. And, and if, if you could in fact design the economy from the top down and it's just crunching the numbers and, and ascribing values to things, um, Hayek and Mises before him would argue uh, socialism would work if you could do that, but you can't do that. Yep. And the knowledge emerges from the process and, and absent the process, you can't get to better solutions. But, but this idea, like I'm, I've been trying to explain to people um, you know, you're Matt. You're a libertarian, but that just seems like this this romantic, idealistic thing. And I've been trying to explain in a way that that you just did about standing in line at a grocery store. Nobody told anybody to do that, or maybe your mom did when you were six <laughs> right. and you cut in line. And she, yeah, and my mom learned it from yeah. someone else, and and you know that's how the law passes on and it's evolved. And and but you know when we talk about the rule of law, um, with the, and these are really sort of rules of of uh, civil conduct right mm -hmm. these these are just the way that we figured out how to do things over over tens and hundreds of years uh, but when we talk about the rule of law i feel like a lot of people particularly on the left are probably hearing something else they're they're thinking yeah. they're thinking sort of an arbitrariness of 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 the man coming down on you and telling you well, what to do i think this is because uh you know, people on the right often don't understand what it means. Yeah. I mean, I, I sometimes hear the president talk about it. And, and when he says it, he means law and order, right. which is something totally different. Right. It's not about the government being uh, tough and all that. Um, what it's really about is uh, general rules that are equally applicable. In fact, I think what best embodies the rule of law is the Equal Protection Clause. Um, and it's probably not the first provision in the Constitution that comes to mind when people talk about libertarianism. They might yeah. think of other parts of the First Amendment, obviously. Uh, if you ask you know, some others, they might say the Second Amendment. So there are other provisions that people think of and associate with libertarianism. And I often think of the Equal Protection Clause as uh, being sort of that amendment that probably best approximates, at least from a Hayekian perspective, what libertarianism is and in fact Hayek himself was um, thinking about how to draft an amendment um, uh, at the federal level because the equal protection clauses is, is related to um, state action yeah. so he was thinking of how to how to write one up for the federal level that would be uh, you know embodying this principle of the rule of law 
Um, but yeah, it's it's very different from this sort of tough guy. Like you know, we're gonna have tough laws and and uh, everyone's got to stay in line. It's not that kind of thing. Yeah, the rules should be simple and fair and yes. equally applied. Um, and this is why Lady Justice is blindfolded. Yeah, and it would, what um, Hayek would say is uh, general rules of just conduct. Yeah. Um, and, and that's it. That's, that's what he thought of as the law. Yeah, and, and even those rules, uh, going back to your earlier point, you know, uh, Hayek makes a distinction between laws and legislation. Yes. Fundamental difference. Yep. Um, and, you know, the laws that we all agree are, are just and fair, again, were stolen from your mom and your grandma. You know, don't hurt people, don't take their stuff, uh, take responsibility, mind your own business. Um, the, the laws that matter, that hold civil society together, um, aren't enforced by government so much as that they're, they're commonly accepted rules of, of conduct. Yeah, that's right. So... You know, I think a lot of legislators just get it backward. They get their role backward. They don't understand what they're what they're uh, what they're there for. And uh, my job is to ensure that society can operate freely, where people can make decisions for themselves. They can um, determine the outcomes for their own lives. Um, they uh, figure out their own purposes in life. Whereas a lot of my colleagues think that we have to figure out the purpose for people. We have to tell them what they must do. Um, and so this is another uh, like way of framing you know, what Hayek was talking about. It's the difference between um, setting out some abstract rules for conduct versus giving commands. And a lot of my colleagues, they want to give commands, yeah. telling people how to do things. And I want to just lay out rules of general conduct um, and allow people to make their own decisions about how to do things. Yeah, which which is sort of the, I think maybe that's the secret to what a Hayekian libertarian is all about. Um, how, how would you define that term? Like like if, if you were forced to translate that into English so that, that people other than you and I understood what that meant. So, you know, it's a, it is very hard to, to explain, I think, in a very short way. And yeah. this is why Hayek wrote whole books about this, right. right? But I would say there's a big emphasis on evolutionary processes. Mm -hmm. So this idea that um, people uh, interact with each other and they develop their own framework for society through these interactions using their, their own knowledge rather than having um, something constructed for them uh, from afar. And I, th I think it's just this idea that people make their own decisions using their own knowledge yeah. and that that's the best way for society to progress. It doesn't mean that mistakes won't be made along the way, but it is uh, the best way to sort of uh, filter out those errors and uh, come to some new conclusions or tried lots of different things. Yeah. So so since we've been talking about Hayek, I feel like we need to drop a, a Ludwig von Mises quote in here somewhere. <laughs> um, you know, he, he wrote this book, Liberalism. I think it's one of his better books, and he wrote it 
published in 1927. He's he's looking at the emergence of of radical nationalism and in what would become Nazi Germany, and and pushing against that grain, he talked about the what he called the liberal vision. And by liberal, we should probably use the word libertarian because it it mm-hmm. in no way represents what what modern liberalism has become. But he, you know, he talked about a world where people, uh, regardless of their of their ethnicity, skin color, religion, cultural background, could come together through exchange and cooperation, and and it was a cosmopolitan vision that he had, and and he was he was he was trying to explain what liberalism was, classical libertarian liberalism, and and it was in the context of of radical communists fighting with radical fascists over who would be in charge to mm-hmm. impose their vision from the top down. Um, it strikes me that he was a little bit premature and, and maybe that, that vision is exactly the solution to our current tribal warfare. Well, you know, I, I think the United States has been progressing in recent years more toward um, sort of this European style of politics where you have um, nationalists versus socialists. Yeah. And uh, what really um, unites those groups is their belief in collectivism or having some vision imposed from the top down. Um, uh, with nationalism, it's often centered around some kind of ethnic loyalty like you you have you know you're part of an ethnic group and and your people are superior to the other people and with with socialism it's this idea that um you know those who are struggling need to unite and control the government and put all the wealth in the government and then have it somehow distributed equally by um flawed human beings who who don't have all the information to to make these decisions nor do they have the the goodwill to make these decisions. Yeah. Um, so I I think we are heading in a dangerous direction, and you what, one thing you'll often hear me talk about is uh, how much I dislike the partisanship, and it's it's closely connected to this idea that we're moving in this sort of nationalist versus socialist direction. Both of those um, ideologies nationalism and socialism and fascism and other sorts of isms can thrive in a system where people are very divided and where they don't trust each other and uh, where there's no virtue in the people. In fact, they, they do thrive in those situations. That's where, that's precisely where they do thrive. They like environments where people are extremely divided and um, not trusting of each other. And liberty requires a a society where and a culture where people trust each other, where they are, uh, where the people are virtuous, where they are willing to have honest debates with each other. That's required for liberty to work. And I think people who spend so much time, you know, owning the libs or whatever they want to, you know, however they want to term it. Right. Um are missing the point that they are sowing the seeds of their own destruction, that this kind of um, hostility, antagonism, just for the sake of, for, of antagonizing the other side, does not 
um, make liberty something that can succeed going forward. It, it, it undermines liberty. Yeah. And um, you can't have liberty in a society where everyone hates each other. Yeah. It, it doesn't work. I look at, and you know, I don't know how much of this is uh, social media versus um, a trend towards European style tribalism, but, but you look at the reemergence of Antifa and their explicitly and celebratedly violent tactics. They, they think that violence is just fine, which mm-hmm. I, I view as a fundamentally un-American attitude. I, I'm old school. I still think MLK <laughs> got it right. Um, and, then, and then I watched this, this, this Vice special about, about Charlottesville and the, the yep. neo-Nazis and white nationalists, and I'm like, what the hell's going on in this country? Um, but I, I think it like we've we've inherited this fight from you know the Antifa got its its rise in the 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 early European fight between fascism and socialism. Um, but when you talk to the new democratic socialists, some of your colleagues, mm-hmm. we we can't possibly do a podcast without mentioning Alexandria <laughs> Ocasio Cortez. Um, and I you know I I, I did a deep dive on what she was saying uh, the day she won that election. I, I didn't see that coming. I don't think the Democrats certainly didn't see that coming. But her first video, um, maybe you've seen it, uh, the one that, that made her viral, I found myself agreeing with everything she was saying right up until the very end where she says, and that's why we need Medicare for all, and, <laughs> and they have that litany of, of big government stuff that they put at the end of their stuff. But before that, she was talking about about how the incumbent had lost um, faith with his community. He was now a creature of Washington. He wasn't a, a creature of, of, of the, the, where's she from, the Bronx? Queens, yeah, I think so. Bronx, something like that. Um, that. That he was in bed with Wall Street. He, he had been a chief engineer of the Wall Street bailout along with Nancy Pelosi and John Boehner and, and a Republican president and, and her vision, it sounded like, was really about um, communities working together from the bottom up in voluntary cooperation to solve problems. And I'm thinking to myself, that's not socialism. That's that's us. That's that's who we are. And it's that it's that Hayekian vision of mm-hmm. of of uh, communities and people with that personal knowledge, sort of working stuff out. And lo and behold, things just get better. Things get better when people are free to work stuff out. So I wonder. Uh, I, I don't. I'm not going to assign you to convince her that she's that she's not really a socialist if that's what she believes. Um, but I think a lot of young people that are entranced by what we're now calling democratic socialism, I don't think they're looking for socialism at all. I think they're looking for that community-based cooperation. Yeah, I think that's right. And this is another reason why. I do spend a lot of time trying to persuade people rather than um, always fighting everyone. Yeah. You know, I go to my town halls and I uh, try to talk to people on the left and understand their issues and understand their concerns. And the way I look at it is I try to reveal to them what they may not be aware of, which is that we have a common set of principles, that we actually share a lot of the same principles. Now, when it comes to applying those principles, I do think that um, people often make mistakes. They often um, you know, misread the situation or don't realize how they're doubling down on something that actually they're 
they claim to be opposed to. Yeah. Um, you know, they they want more uh, community control of things, but actually they want to hand it to the federal government somehow. Like yeah. it, it doesn't it doesn't add up. And if you can if you can connect with people on principles, if you can show them, yeah, we are one people. We share these principles. Actually, we're not that far off. And I really believe that. I believe Americans share um, a very large set of common principles. If if we can get that um, understood by a lot of people, I, I do think that many people will come over to uh, classical liberalism or libertarianism um, because it's it's an appealing philosophy. You know, when I when I talk to people, they can see that whether the Republicans are asking me a question or the Democrats are asking me a question at the town hall, um, my answers will be similar. And it's not based on any sort of you know partisan leanings. It's based on this philosophy that people at home can do things better. People can make decisions for themselves a lot better than the federal government can make those decisions. And actually, that is what people want. Yeah. They they might not they might not realize it, but that is what they want if they really think about it. Yeah, you know, um, I think Hayek may have actually anticipated the emergence of democratic socialism um, because, and I think this was law, legislation, and liberty as well. He was talking about uh, three types of of value sets. Like, there's the values that you and I practice without anyone telling us to do so when we engage with each other. And it's, it, it's how you interact with, with people in your, in your world. And then there's the, the, the rules, the values that have emerged spontaneously mm-hmm. over all of these years that, that teach us how to sort of act as a, as a civil society. And then there's, the, then there's the values that the central planners of all sorts and flavors and academics would love to impose on us from the top down, and that's that. That feels like that's the political fight. Like some somebody that thinks they're smarter than us want want to impose that, um, but those aren't American values. No, they're not American yeah. values. Um, from the very beginning, uh, and and you know, I want to add that I think the founders did not always live up to the values that they espoused. You know, we had slavery at the beginning of our 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 nation, our country here. But the principles they talked about, regardless of whether they were able to apply them correctly or, or chose to apply them correctly, um, the principles were good and sound principles. And they were principles of individuals making decisions for their own lives. Um, and, you know, I, I think that uh, I, I mentioned slavery as an example of, of how they really missed the boat um, in a horrendous way. Right. And a lot of times when I talk to people on the left, it's hard for them to overcome those kind of um, faults by our founders. They say, well, how, why should we trust the system that they put in place, our Constitution, that allowed such a horrific thing to happen? And, um, you know, sometimes uh, and often in life, people have principles, they have a set of principles, but they do not apply them correctly or don't understand um, how they should be applied. And um, in some cases, the outcome is horrific, uh, like it was in the early days. And in other cases, it's it's not as serious. But just because um, people have done bad things doesn't mean that they didn't have 
sound principles. They just didn't follow their own principles. Yeah, yeah. The so so let's fast forward to today. The I, I still think uh, that that sort of I would call it radical individualism of the founders. They they were they were unique in the sense that they thought that that people individuals mattered more than government. Mm-hmm. And you know Jefferson was even quite the the democratic romantic. He he thought that people could work stuff out, um, which way before his time, right? And and people don't, I don't think fully appreciate just just how uh, ambitious and radical the American experiment was. And by the way, we're in a garage, so we have we have horns, and that might, that may be one of your staffers telling you that that you gotta you gotta wrap this up. But um, but fast forward to today. Um, Young people are, uh, according to every scare poll that I see, are, are leaning more towards socialism than capitalism. Um, but more importantly, perhaps, they're, they're, they're leaving the two-party duopoly yeah, That's in what they say, though. Yeah, that's what they say. That's and what I, they say, but they don't believe it. Yeah, they don't, they don't believe it. They, they're looking for an alternative, and I, yeah. think, I think it's very much related to them leaving the, the red block box and the blue yep. box and, and registering as independents to the extent they register at all. Um, What's going on there, and and how do we how do we meet the challenge of of these these young generations? Well, I think they largely view someone go outside and beat that the, guy up. By the way, they largely view uh, conservatism or the Republican Party or the right um, from uh, what appears on TV these days yeah. and or in social media. It's a lot of nationalism, and um, it's it's government control in a different way. Um, big government, but just uh, to other ends, right. not the ends right. that they want, and and um, they often view it as as protecting large corporations and and monopolies and all these other things. Yeah. Um, so I think that's their vision of uh, free markets, because that's you know they hear Republicans talking about free markets and then they see Republicans controlling things actually and they think well that must be what free markets is yeah bailing it's, it's out just wall like, street and helping it's, their, their it's just the government helping other people not right, us right and cronyism yeah it's cronyism and um i think it's important that they recognize that that is not free markets that is not liberty that is not the vision that um that people like hayek had or even the you know the founders had when they when they put together the constitution that was not their vision for America. And um, and I think young people have been blessed with so many of the benefits of capitalism and freedom uh, and maybe don't think about it that much. They, they you know, they have um, these smartphones and they've got the Internet. And, uh, you know, compared to people 20, 30, 40 years ago, the uh, the the things that people have today is. Uh, are just incredible. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. it's an incredible difference in wealth, and I think a lot of people um, spend a lot of time thinking comparatively, like how am I compared to uh, other people today? You know, is is there someone richer than me? Instead of thinking about the wealth that markets have created for everyone, right? Uh, I mean, the um, even the most like basic automobiles today are much nicer, much, much nicer than the nicest automobiles 30 years ago. Um, the phone you have is more advanced by far than anything NASA had. 
you know, when they were sending people to the moon. And I think people lose sight of that, how much wealth that is, that that is actually um, uh, a gain to them as individuals. And that came about through markets, um, through people interacting freely and making trades. It's not through government control. And everyone can see this. They always say to me, Justin, tell me one country that has tried libertarianism. And I, I always say that's the easiest question I've ever had. And the country is America. America's tried libertarianism. Now, is it um, the idealistic libertarianism of Hayek? Is it a perfect libertarianism? No, of course not. But America is a country that tried it. And actually, the uh, results have shown that it works. All you have to do is compare the results in this country to other large countries around the world. I think it's disingenuous to compare to like, you know, city states. Right. But Compare us to other large countries around the world, and you'll see a, um, it's like night and day, the difference in terms of wealth creation here, in terms of invention. Think about, think about all of the um, great technologies around the world and how much are from America. And that's not a coincidence. People always act like it's just a coincidence, like uh, it just happened. It happened to be the case that Americans invented all these things and that our companies are doing fantastic around the world. It just happens to be the case. It's not, it's not something that is a coincidence. It's because we believe in the value of markets and freedom and individual liberty and uh, creation and failure. We believe in all of these things, that they're part of a process for becoming better. And as a result, people in America live much better off than people in so many countries around the world. And uh, I think it's it's so easy to lose sight of that. The so making that sale um, so that we don't we don't screw it up, like we don't we don't hand it over to to Washington D.C. to solve all of our problems. And and I feel like both parties are making that argument right now. They're, that that um, you know, give me the power, I'll make America great again. Yeah, I, I I wanted to get through this whole process without mentioning Donald Trump, but but of course uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Anybody that is sort of aspiring to 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 say, "Give me the power and I'll fix it." Um, that I feel like in a lot of ways, smaller libertarians are Switzerland because we don't, we don't want anybody to have the power. We want to democratize power. We want to shift it back to people so that they can solve problems for themselves. Um, that has to be. Um, that has to be a wide lane to take this idea through. Maybe it's right down the middle, and maybe it's uh, just on a different highway altogether. I don't know. It's well, so, there's I, something know, there. I think, uh, like I mentioned earlier, I think most Americans believe this. They believe in the power of liberty and freedom and markets. They believe in these things. Um, they don't always think through how much they believe in them. If you press them on particular circumstances, they say, yeah, yeah, I guess I really do believe in markets. I really do want to decide these things for myself and not have the government tell me. But often it's on different issues. Like they, they, they're thinking about the issues that are right in front of them. Yeah. And they hear about stuff on the news and they, they sometimes think, well, I wish Washington would decide that. But when it applies to their own life, they say, well, yeah, I guess I do want to decide that for myself. So um, I think people really do believe in a uh, in a common set of principles, I don't think they're looking for um, some kind of government savior. Um, you know, a lot of politicians are running on, like you mentioned, 
hey, elect me and, and I'll save the country. And I don't think that's what most people are looking for because people understand that one person can't save the country. Like what saves the country is the country working together um, in communities, yeah. uh, people making decisions for their own lives and having the freedom to do so. That's, that's what makes the country great. Um, it can't be made great by any one person. So your dad was a radical optimist. He, he went through heroic efforts <laughs> yes. to get to the United States because he believed that what he was going to find here was, was better than anything else he could imagine. Are you an optimist like your dad, or are we in trouble? So I'm an optimist for the American people. I think that our government's in trouble. Um, I, I do think that people in government are doing worse today than they were even when I started not that long ago. I mean, I, I think things have deteriorated. But I go home and people are so nice, so positive, um, so considerate. Uh, they're encouraging me all the time and saying, thank you for what you do. And I do think most Americans feel that way. They feel like they want to make decisions for their own lives and they don't want the government telling them what to do in every circumstance. And they want someone who's just going to be honest and, uh, and go represent them in a way that, that maximizes their happiness and their freedom. You know, it allow, gives them the opportunity to, to seek their own happiness. And, um, and so I, feel, I do feel good about where the American people are. Uh, I think that we are living in the best times. Uh, the, you know, people talk about, oh, you know, it used to be better. And, and I think that's part of like the whole make America great again thing. Let's well, like, make America great again. This is as good as it's been. Yeah. You know, and yes, we're all going to have um, issues with particular things that happen in government. And we might have a particular government program we don't like or a particular thing we don't like. But guess what? Uh, people are generally better off today. They're healthier. They're happier um, than at any time in history. So that sounds like a story that we should both be telling more often. We, we libertarians are so great against uh, about raging against the machine, and we could do a whole other program about all the stupid things that our government did to us probably just this week yeah. or this month. But we never sort of tell that, that beautiful story of, of what happens when people are free. And that it's kind of hard to do because we don't know. Because yeah, we, that's the whole point. Like we don't know unless the process happens. That's right, and and um, and that's you know that's what often makes like central planning so alluring to people because they kind of know what they're going to get. I the government says I'm going to do this thing for you, and the alternative is freedom. And with freedom, well, good things can happen, bad things can happen. You don't know. You don't know exactly what the item is, but if you want to. Um, have the opportunity for for growth and progress into society, then you have to have that freedom. You have to have that ability to um, take risks, to make decisions for your own life, and to experience um, failure and success. And it's the failure that helps build up that success over time. And I think people don't appreciate how much that has played out here in the United States and how, how great uh, a country we live in and what great times we live in. I think we are, in most respects, freer than ever. I'm going to leave it right there. Thank you so much, Congressman. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah. 
Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Make sure to subscribe and rate our podcast so we can reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.